Well, in 2001, arguably, I think one of the best movies of all time came out. And I remember distinctly it was 2001 uh, because my wife and I actually went to see this movie on our second date. And the reason it was our second date is because I didn't want to let my nerd flag fly too soon in our relationship. And so we went to a little safer movie on our first date. But our second date, we went to see Lord of the Rings. The Fellowship of the Ring, we got some fans out there. Uh, I mean, good against evil, the, the, the story of a hobbit that's trying to bring a ring to Mordor, and you know, is, is good going to triumph in the end? Uh, I was watching the movie, and if there was like a camera on my face, my mouth was just agape the entire time. Like an amazing story. I had never read the books before, uh, made, didn't make it past chapter two, but uh, the movies were great. That's my kind of style, and I was, was watching through them. Uh, and it's, it's one of those classic movie trilogies where you get to the end of the movie, and you're not sure how it's going to end, uh, and then the credits roll, and you have to wait an entire year for the next movie to come out so you can find out. Uh, but I absolutely love the Lord of the Rings movies. So much so that when my sons were born, and I was standing there in, the, in the, you know, the welcoming room, and I'm looking at them, I'm dreaming of all those moments in life, like graduation, teaching them to love Jesus, teaching them how to ride a bike. I am counting down to the day where I can watch Lord of the Rings with my boys, right? I'm thinking about that moment. Uh, and so my wife would probably say it was a little bit too soon, but when they were five and six, I was like, I think they're pretty mature. We, we can watch this movie together. Get the popcorn out. We got we got some some sodas, and we get ready to watch. We start the movie, and they could not be less interested in the film. Right? They're they're looking around. They're playing with their toys so much so that I turned off the movie, and I didn't want to sully their first experience watching this cinematic masterpiece. And so a couple years go by, uh, and then it, we finally hit the sweet spot. And I turn on Lord of the Rings. They're uh, elementary school age, and they are just enthralled. I'm not even watching the movie. I'm watching their faces as they're, they're seeing this story unfold. And all those experiences that I had the first time I watched the movie, I'm seeing it like through their eyes. And it was everything that I dreamed it would be. They're, they're wondering like, is good going to triumph? Is evil going to win out in the end? Or is Frodo going to fulfill his mission? Uh, and the amazing thing was this. I knew how the movie was going to end. And so that same feeling of trepidation, of fear that I had the first time I watched it, uh, I, I didn't have that same sense of, of unknowing. And for the boys, as they went through, like, I, I knew at the end that the king was going to sit on his throne. Like, I knew that evil was going to be, uh, was going to fail. I knew that good would win out in the end. Today, as we look at a passage of Scripture, we're going to look at what God says is going to ultimately happen in the end of history. But for us as Christians, I think sometimes it's easy to look at the news, to, to watch you know, what's happening in the world and say, like, do we actually have confidence in how this whole thing plays out? Right? Like, I, I find myself scrolling through you know, different, different apps or different things that are happening and saying, like, like God, where are you in this? Like, what is, what is the end game? Like, do you find yourself living in a state of fear or a state of worry? Do, do you find yourself, you know, not thinking about what God says is the end game when it comes to history? As Christians, our knowledge about how things are going to end should give us comfort. You know, there are some of us as Christians who focus too much 
on the end times. And, and you know, place an unhealthy emphasis on that, uh, what, what the Bible says about prophecy or focusing just on that, that end time. But honestly, for most of us, and I think if I think of you sitting in the seats, many of us don't think at all about the end times. Right? We, we may have never even put our, our minds or thoughts about it. We may have, maybe you think about the topics of uh, a big fancy word we use called eschatology, and it's completely new to you. But Jesus actually had a lot to say about the end. If you've been with us this summer, we've been making our way through the book of Mark uh, in the Man of Action series. And I think the, book, the gospel of Mark is just does a great example of talking about the life of Christ. And you see every action that he took was incredibly deliberate. The last two weeks, Pastor Allen's been preaching on Mark 11 and Mark 12, which begins with Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And as Jesus is making his entrance, this is, this is his final week leading up to the cross, leading up to his death, burial, and resurrection. And you just see every single word, every single statement that Jesus makes, it has incredible intensity. Uh, the people that are around him seem small pieces of, of what's going to happen. Jesus is laying out kind of uh, what's going to happen in these coming days, but they're not completely understanding what he's saying. Where they only see a small part, Jesus sees the big picture. One of my wife's favorite hobbies uh, is putting together puzzles. So if we're in a, a fun store, or, you know, if we're traveling or something, the, the first thing that she'll look for is a puzzle that she'll enjoy putting together. And I just don't have the patience for puzzles. Like all those little pieces, trying to figure out how the colors go together. Uh, but she has a gift. She can look at the box and she can see this beautiful picture. And where I don't see it, she's able to come out and, you know, a couple hours later have this beautiful, like, work of art on our dining room table. Jesus sees the big picture in a way that no one else does. And not even the big picture as we look at Mark 13 as it relates to his ministry on earth. But the big picture as it comes to the context of all of history. And where we can't see where things come together, where his disciples are still confused or not, not putting the pieces together, every statement that Jesus makes is incredibly deliberate. And it's with a knowledge of of God's control over history, that we can have an incredible confidence as Christians. That we have no reason to fear. There is confidence that God is going to do exactly what he said he is going to do. And so if you have your Bibles with you today, I'll encourage you to open with me to Mark chapter 13, or if you have a, a digital app or a, use the Bible app, Mark 13 is where we'll be at today. Uh, and this is actually a pretty challenging section of scriptures. In fact, uh, as I was first looking at this topic, I was like wrapping my mind about how do you, how do you talk about a subject like this? Uh, you know, I actually found that there was incredible, um, I, I just found myself just enjoying what I was learning through my study. And I'm excited to share some of that with you today. Uh, this is a section of scripture that is referred to as the Olivet Discourse, mostly because Jesus delivered it from the Mount of Olives. And this discourse is actually included in three out of the four Gospels, which basically means uh, it's worth paying attention to. Uh, Mark 13, starting in verse 1. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. The disciples are with Jesus as he's exiting the temple, and 
Actually, interestingly, as it leads up to this week to the cross, this is the last time that Jesus will leave the temple. Um, And as they're going out, they're marveling at this magnificent structure. And by all accounts, both secular and uh, religious scholars have said uh, that the ancient temple was an ancient marvel um, of the world at the time. The stones that were there were so large that modern cranes uh, in our contemporary society wouldn't even be able to move them today. Uh, the, the gold work and the, fan, the, the metals that were included on, in the temple build were so incredible that people would not be able to help but marvel about the beauty of this temple. And as the disciples are marveling at this amazing structure, Jesus says not one stone will be left on another. Now, we don't actually get to see what the disciples' reactions are. Jesus often was making these statements that were kind of extreme, but I imagine there was probably a bit of an eye roll, and they're thinking, Jesus, why do you have to be so drastic, right? Like, all we're doing is just marveling about your father's house, right? The temple is probably where they perceive this idea of the Messiah, where he would reign, where he would rule. Uh, And in this moment, as they're just marveling at something that is glorifying to God, was said to be where the presence of God was held in ancient uh, Jewish uh, belief, that in that moment, Jesus says, not one stone will be left on another. And so inherently, marveling at the beauty of this house of God was not a wrong thing. And so what was Jesus saying was the issue? I believe Jesus was saying that they were marveling at the wrong things. In fact, most of Jesus' ministry, as he worked in the temple, uh, most of the, the people that he was talking to, that he was trying to correct, as he was trying to give a different worldview or perception of God, were the religious leaders that were in the temple. This temple that was meant to be this place of worship where, uh, where God's people would engage with him, where God's people would worship him, it had become a place of business. And Jesus was saying, you are marveling at the wrong things. I wonder, do we sometimes marvel at the wrong things? Sometimes you can see the actions of God, and you see God is doing something really incredible or exciting either in your life or in a ministry, and and if we're not careful, we can say, oh, that action is what we're celebrating. That action is what we're worshiping, and we can forget the one who is giving. As a church, we're actually getting ready for a season, I think, this fall that's going to be incredibly exciting, talking about some of the exciting things that God has been doing in the church and some of the exciting things that will be coming uh, in the future for the church. But we cannot worship the things and forget about the one who gives the things. And Jesus is saying, do not lose your sense of wonder. Do not wonder about the wrong things. Don't forget God. And Jesus' statement is so extreme that for his disciples, it actually sparks their curiosity. We can see continuing in verse 3, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when these things will happen, and what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? And Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen. But the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. And if you continue reading through the passage, he continues to give signs of things that were to come before Christ would return. Uh, And there's actually two questions that are being asked. 
Uh, the first one is quite literally, the disciples are asking Jesus, when will uh, this, this thing come to place, where, come to pass where not one stone will stand on another? And what's interesting is in the year 70 AD, so within the lifetime of many of these disciples that were there, quite literally the temple is destroyed and not one stone is left standing on another. In 70 AD, there is this uprising amongst the Jews where they are, uh, they're trying to, to revolt against Rome. And Rome, uh, they send in this army that just completely sacks the city of Jerusalem. Uh, and just to make a statement, to make sure that Roman authority is not questioned again, uh, the general makes it a point to say that not one of these stones of the temple can remain standing on another. Historians have done archaeologist uh, diggings at this spot, and the damage was so great that this magnificent building, they have a hard time placing exactly where it was originally located uh, because of this literal uh, fulfillment of what Jesus prophesied in this moment. But if you read through this passage, it's not just talking about that moment in 70 AD where the temple was destroyed. Jesus is also answering the question, when will he return. He's talking about all these things that are come that are signs of his return. Many of these things you read through and you think, well, I could see where those moments have happened in history, but obviously that moment is yet to come. And so as I've been digging through this passage, as I've been studying, there's a couple of things that I wanted to, to take out of here and for us to remember as we look at Mark 13 and how it applies to Jesus, this man of action. And the first one is this, that history is his story. You think of this book, uh, the story of God from creation in the book of Genesis all the way to uh, Christ's eventual return at the end of history in the book of Revelation. 66 books uh, that were written by individuals who were inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is the number one way that God reveals himself to man. Uh, you look at the story, and some 2,000 years ago, it went from the time that Jesus walked the earth to the time that he comes again in incredible power and incredible glory, all of history is his story. This book hinges on the person of Jesus. The future is not open. As Christians, as we read through this book, we realize that we're not unsure of who will come out on top. We see the battle against evil in the world, against injustice, against hate and sin. And there's a reminder for us in Mark 13 that it's not a nail biter. Like we know who comes out on top, that Jesus will come out on top. And here in Mark 13, as Jesus is in his final week of his earthly ministry, he's leading to the cross where he'll be, he'll be uh, executed and pay every price for us to, to uh, pay the pay payment of sin. He's giving his disciples a heads up that the whole of history is under the ultimate control and supervision of God. I'll say that again, the entirety of history is under the ultimate control and supervision of God. But you may say, we just talked about a few minutes ago, like I watch the news, I see these things that are happening, like really, like is God really in control of all of this? Like, does God really have this grand plan to, to play it out? I look at the world and I just see messy. And what we see is that all of those broken things in the world, they're a result of man's rebellion. They're a result of sin and that God sees those things and he says, I see your mess. And he enters into it 
personally in the person of Jesus Christ. He says, I'm going to enter into it, and in my time, I have put in place a plan to make all things right. You may look at the, the brokenness of our world and say, Jesus, why are you so long in coming? And it's interesting to realize that his patience in returning again is actually incredible because it's his patience that comes from this desire that more people would come to know him, that more people would come to, to receive the gospel, that more people would come into relationship with him. And as Jesus is sharing about these things, I, I just think of, you know, he's alluding to these wars that are going to come. And you think about the wars that have happened throughout history, descriptions of these battles that are literally hell on earth. And God sees that and he says, I have put a plan in place to make all things new. You see, tragedy, you know, even this last weekend is uh, horrific instances of, of violence in our, in our culture, in our society. And, and in those places, we say, God, where are you in this? And God says, I am there. I am here. It breaks my heart. And God has promised to make all things new. If we went around this room, for each of us, there are probably moments where we have seen tragedy, where we've experienced horrible things. It's important to note that these things are a result of sin. They're a result of the brokenness of our world. But God is present in those circumstances. In fact, God promises the presence of his Holy Spirit for those who love him to comfort and to heal. And that ultimately we as Christians can have confidence in the fact that God has put a plan in motion that will make all things right in the end. We don't have to be curious or fearful or scared of how things are going to play out. God has promised to make all things right new. One of my favorite promises from all of scripture comes from Romans 8, 20, 28, that God works all things together for the good of those who love him. And he never promised that it would be easy. He never promised that we'd be shielded. He never promised that there wouldn't be times where we'd experience the brokenness of the world. But he has said that I have put a plan in place that will make all things good in the long run, that he can produce out of our ashes incredible blessings. He is ultimately in control of history. He is ultimately in control of tomorrow. He holds your future, and he holds the, the future of the entire world. History is his story. The second thought out of this is that history is eventually going to end. The next major redemptive act of God following Christ's death on the cross will be when Jesus comes back at the end of time. He'll wrap up all of history. He'll bring a close to this world. The Bible tells us that this, uh, this earth that we know and the heavens will pass away, but it describes the formation of a new heavens and a new earth. We can read about this in verse 26. At that time, people will see the Son of Man, that is Jesus, coming in the clouds with great power and glory. He will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. We exist now in a period of time between two advents. And this second, this second advent, this return of Christ, Jesus won't hide his glory like he did on that first Christmas. Like, he, we will, no one will be able to deny uh, where, he's, where he's at. He will, his return will be unmistakable. He will gather everyone who has received him throughout history. And this picture is more incredible than we can even imagine. 
The presence of God will fulfill a need that many of us are, may not even be aware that we have. You were created to be fully satisfied in God. And I think in this life, you know, in our flesh, we can get glimpses of that satisfaction. As you learn to trust him, as you rely on him in moments of worship, I know there are times that I have felt his presence in my life. But friends, it is a glimpse of the full satisfaction that will come when Christ returns in his fullness. You know, I find myself sometimes frustrated that in my flesh, if I know that to be true, why don't I desire him more? Why don't I want him more? Why, are we, why am I still struggling, uh, you know, with different issues in my life? Why, why, if, if I believe that God is the, is the one thing that can fully satisfy, why am I still going to all these other things for satisfaction? I had a professor in seminary that had a great bit of wisdom on this topic. And he said, you know, part of our condition as man in the flesh is that our wanter is broken. The way that you were designed to be fully satisfied in God, as a result of the fall, as a result of sin, our wanters are broken. There's something inside of us that won't fully understand our need or desire for God until he returns in incredible majesty. And so I read Mark 13, and I think the importance of not putting roots too deep here, to live our lives ready to go, uh, to, uh, because this world is not all that there is. But you know, if we're honest, I think there are many times that we can be consumed with loving this world too much. Right? In America, it's all about this sense or this desire to work towards being comfortable. Uh, you know, if I'm honest, do I sometimes trust uh, more in action, even though in speech I say, God, I trust in you. Do I trust more in the growth of my 401k? Or if I'm thinking about the future, are there times that I'm, I'm planning and I'm saying, you know, I'm going to put more trust in what I'm able to accumulate or what I'm able to gather, that I have confidence in that, rather than putting confidence in a God that is, that is incredibly more important. It's with a greater understanding of our standing in the context of eternity that it causes us to live our lives differently, to invest differently, to worry less, and to focus on things that are internally important. History is going to one day come to an end. That's what the Bible says. And my final point, and we don't know when. In verse 32, Jesus continues, But about that day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven or the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Be alert. You do, know, you do not know what time the, the, when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task. And he tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back whether in the evening or at midnight, when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not find, let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. I can remember when my sons uh, hit a certain age, and 
uh, it was the first time that we were leaving them at home for a few hours uh, while we went, went and ran some errands, and uh, they had been prepped for this moment, right? We, we had given them all the training on emergency procedures. We made sure there were two phones that were fully charged that they'd be able to call if there was an emergency. Uh, we gave them this long list of things that they had to do while we were gone. Uh, that is long past. We don't necessarily do that every time when we're leaving the boys at home. Uh, but there was this whole procedure, and at the end was this little reminder uh, Eli and Ben, you don't know when your dad's going to return. So be ready, right? Don't, don't burn the house down. Don't make everything a mess. Make sure you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, following all the rules, because you don't know when I'm going to return. Uh, and I like to think a little bit of fear is healthy in that sense, right? For them to be able to think through uh, different choices. Jesus is giving this reminder. And he says, you don't know when I'm going to come back. No one does. Uh, not the angels, not, not even, he says not even the son. Jesus in the flesh didn't even fully know that moment. Uh, but uh, there is this promise that history is eventually going to end. My wife was telling me about a guy she saw online, either an article or someone was telling her about this, a guy who was selling apocalypse ready kits. And uh, he was marketing these, I think, to Christians. And, you know, there are different views on how those end times are actually going to happen. Uh, but, you know, it just seems like the sense of Jesus is saying, don't, you can't necessarily plan for it. You don't know when it's going to happen. One of the last things that Jesus says to his disciples following his death and resurrection, he says, of the times, no one knows. But he does say this, keep watch, stay alert. What does that practically look like in the life of a Christian? I believe that the mission statement of this church actually sums it up pretty well. That we exist to lead people into a focused life with Jesus Christ. And what does that actually mean? I think it's this orientation where we shift our eyes off of our present circumstance, off of our, ourselves, and we put them on Christ. And the more that we have our eyes centered on Christ, that it allows us to align our lives in a way that says, God, we want what you want for this world. We want what you want for our lives. God, would you allow us to live lives of mission and purpose? I think that is what it means to live a life that's ready. Friends, history is going to end. And it's going to end with the triumph of Jesus and his return. It's gonna, he's going to come with all of his power and glory shining from his face as he comes in the clouds. The trumpet of God will sound. The dead in Christ will rise. And those who are in Christ will be caught up to spend eternity with him in paradise. And it is bigger and more amazing than we can even begin to understand. A picture of this promise uh, is actually in the final, uh, the final chapter of the book of Revelation. This is John writing about a vision he had that God had given him for the end. And it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. 
You see, all the way back at the beginning of the book of Genesis in the garden, God creates all of these, all of, all of creation. He creates the cosmos. He creates the earth. He says that it is good. He creates man. And you see this picture of a creator who is with man in the garden. He said he, he walked with Adam and Eve, this desire for God to be with his creation. And as a result of, of our mess up, as a result of man's rebellion, you see uh, we reject that level of relationship. And the story of history is God making a way for us to come back into relationship with him. I think it's amazing here in the end, God will be with his people. And his people will be with their God. It's this amazing promise from Scripture. And in the end, he will make all things new. My family over the last couple months uh, has had the incredible joy of welcoming two little girls to come and be part of our family. And uh, they're with us as foster girls, but they're actually in process of, uh, it's an adoptive placement. So they'll potentially be uh, future moras. Uh, But it's a unique thing to welcome um, new people into your family. And for them, everything that they see in our house is new. And so they, there's this little cabinet we have on our first floor with different memories of things that we've done. And most of the items are covered in dust because they haven't been touched in a long time. And they want to know the story of every single one. There's toys that have been long neglected sitting in toy chests that are all of a sudden fresh and new and exciting. Um, and in our hallway upstairs that goes to our bedrooms, uh, there is a montage of wedding photos of different pictures. And, uh, you know, if I'm honest, I haven't looked at those in any detail in years and years and years. Uh, but the girls want to know the story, right? They're looking and trying to figure out, oh, that looks like a younger daddy. That looks like a younger mom. Uh, they're seeing pictures of grandparents that look a little bit younger. They're so confused on why Eli and Ben aren't in those pictures uh, back on the wedding day. But, you know, telling them the story, reminding them of that, of that experience on our wedding day, uh, it just brings back this, the whole experience. I remember as a groom standing at the front of the room, and we did uber traditional where we didn't see each other until that moment um, on the, when the wedding ceremony was about to begin. And I remember looking back and Katie coming around the corner, just taking my breath away. And, you know, in the, the moments that led up, uh, she came down the aisle and she gave herself to me. And it was this beautiful moment where we began our lives together in the fullness uh, of a representation of what the gospel is meant to be. One of the consistent descriptions of God's relationship with man, of, of Christ's relationship with the church, is that of a bridegroom and a bride. I think it's meant to give us this picture, this understanding of the sense that Jesus has done everything in his power to bring us back into relationship with God. That God desires for nothing more than for you to be fully satisfied in him because that's what you were created to be. And this picture of the end of time comes from this place of saying that God has done everything in his power to bring us back into relationship with himself. And all that we need to do is respond and receive it. But again, in my flesh, I find myself frustrated and saying, do I actually long for Christ in that way? Do I live my life in a way that says, God, there's nothing more in this world that I want more than you? 
If I read through a passage of Mark, like Mark 13 and I see Jesus stating what's going to happen in the future, I say, God, would you wake it in me a desire for more of you? Would you help me to see your story in the context of eternity as a love story of your pursuit of mankind? Do you desire Christ that way? Father, would you give us, through the power of your Holy Spirit, God, a, a greater sense of, uh, I think, a hunger uh, to know you more fully. God, for the fact that you reveal yourself to us now, today, through your word and through your spirit, uh, God, we are just grateful. And Father, allow us to hold tightly to that greater promise, God, that you are in control of history. God, that all of history is your story of your pursuits of me, of your pursuit of us. Father, we love you. And God, we ask that you would allow us to live our lives in the context and understanding of an eternity. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a great week.